Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. All right. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, March 5th. Featuring Kim Fox is just moments away. But before we get into that, we got to thank the following unions for jumping on board and sponsoring this podcast. Unions like the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8. That's correct. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9. That's correct. The International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. That's correct. And of course, today's <laughs> Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, March 5th is brought to you by our good friends, at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Take a chill pill, man. <laughs> Hour number two. Let's go. Oh, I got to get the new song. Hold on. Here we go. Let's go. It is Thursday, March 5th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, union man Ed Maher is back, and it's the Ben Jarofsky Show debut of Cook County State's Attorney, Kim Fox. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Benny J. Ben Jarofsky. Ed Maher comes in once a month from the Operating Engineers Local 150, sitting right across from me, enjoying this beat. Before we bring him on, what you got for me, D? Oh, this is a hot beat, huh? Yeah. He likes All it. Right. Love that bass. <laughs> oh, yeah. No one plays air bass like Ben Jarofsky. <laughs> Look at that. Oh, good form. Gotta hold it up high. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm that kind of bass player, Ed. <laughs> Keep an eye. All right, everybody. Right now at ChicagoReader.com and at in Chicago Reader and Newsstands, it's the latest column from our very own Ben Jarofsky. This article or column is titled Panic Peddlers. Oh, yeah, ben Jarofsky, on. tell us uh, what we can expect. I, I actually uh, just went on a riff on this, I don't know, a couple times in the show. Just I, I can't stand when people try to pa- panic me uh, into voting a certain way. I, I, I've never liked it. Uh, I don't like to be browbeaten that way. Uh, but uh, anyway, so uh, th- this is my... Uh, I'm addressing the notion that Bernie at the top of the ticket would automatically mean the Democrats would lose the House and the Senate, which is a message that is being conveyed uh, by many people of the centrist persuasion. And uh, I will vote for Joe Biden. No, I've said this all along. He's he's been my number three all along. Well, he's been your number three all along. Yeah. Yeah, You know, well, actually, for a while, remember Yang actually knocked him down to four. Well, he's been your number four. Uh, Yeah. So I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. But I don't want to be, you know, frightened into voting for Joe Biden by this notion that somehow or other Democratic voters everywhere are going to run Republican if Bernie's at the top of the ticket. It doesn't even it's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. And this is the point I was I would make. I wonder if what uh, Ed Maher thinks about this. If a voter is a swing voter and is does not like Bernie Sanders so much that he or she is going to vote for Donald Trump, that does not automatically mean that he or she is going to vote against a Democratic congressional candidate. My guess is that a swing voter would look to balance his or her vote. If you're a swing voter, that's what a, that's classic swing voter mentality. So if Bernie's the front runner, is the nominee, you don't like him, and you're so motivated either not to vote or to vote for Donald John Trump, 
then you might go for the um, the Democratic congressional candidate just to balance that vote out. I've seen that happen so many elections, Ed Maher, when swing districts. So I just think it's a fear tact. I hate when people try to motivate me through fear. You get what I'm saying? It's like I should vote for who I want to vote for in a primary, not be uh, motivated for fear. So that's sort of the issue. And I took a look, just for the record, 1972 presidential race before anybody in this room was born. uh, George McGovern got trounced by Richard Nixon. The Republican uh, presidential candidate, Richard Nixon, absolutely trounced uh, the liberal uh, Democratic candidate, George McGovern. But the Democrats held the House and held the Senate in that. Uh, they gained seats in the Senate. So that was a classic case of what I was just saying, where voters, they kind of balanced it. You know, they put their money. It's like going to Vegas. You put your money in this and then you cover it with a bet over there. So anyway, that's my view on that one. Go check out that column, everybody, chicagoreader.com and in newsstands all across the city. And be on the lookout for a Beyond the Column podcast on Ben's latest article. Very good. Ed Maher, uh, welcome back to the show, young man. Good to be back. Good and, to see you, Ben. And uh, it's good to see you. And I, just before we take the deep dive in the uh, labor issues of the day, I got to say, I got a big kick out of this Facebook post that you put up. Uh, you had your daughter in the studio uh, once. I yeah, last summer. Yeah, last summer. Um, great kid. And uh, there were, you had a daddy-daughter dance. I was looking. No offense that I was kind of laughing. Uh, it just, you should have seen me when I was dancing. It's, that, that's worth a laugh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what kind of music was it? Oh, God. I don't know. Like uh, Taylor Swift and... You know, all that kind of stuff. A gym full of nine-year-old girls jumping and screaming and just having the time of their lives. So, Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was a blast. I, I mean, you know, we they do school districts all over do that kind of stuff uh, every year, and I never miss it. Because there will be a year, a couple of years down the road. She's nine now, but by the time she's like 11, she's not going to want to hang around with me anymore. So i got to soak it up while I can. Take it while you can. Uh, as the old man who's been through every phase of childhood, I'm telling you, it's coming. Right on. Uh, just... Got to stay cool. Feel free to call me anytime for a parental advice or at least a shoulder to cry on. All right, Ed Maher, uh, I know you have something on uh, your mind that you want to talk about, a constitutional amendment. I want to talk about the National Labor Relations Board. Let's start with your constitutional amendment. Go ahead. Yeah, it's been it's it's something that's still developing. We're still pushing a bill in the legislature, but uh, it's been reported a little bit more and more in uh, Crane Chicago Business and um, Capital Facts again this week. Uh, that we're supporting an amendment uh, to the Constitution. It would be called the Illinois Workers' Rights Amendment that would protect collective bargaining uh, from attacks uh, or limitations such as right to work, but it would uh, amend the Constitution to basically make the law of the land as it exists today um, not just not something that is subject to the whim of you know a, a, a moving legislature, something that's in the Constitution, so that a law couldn't be passed that would prohibit workers uh, and employers from negotiating agreements with one another on something like, uh, you know, union security agreement, um, which is banned with right to work laws. So it would protect collective bargaining and it would also uh, ban any laws that would restrict or prohibit any subjects of bargaining. So what that means, it's a little bit confusing, but what that means is back in 2011 in Wisconsin, when they passed Act 10, what they did was say that public employees could no longer bargain I mean, you could sit there in a room and negotiate over these things, but the employer had no obligation to talk about them. Um, and I, I, actually, most of them were prohibited under Act 10, but it was you couldn't bargain for health care anymore. You couldn't bargain for pensions or any retirement anymore. And you could no longer bargain over wages exceeding 1% or the consumer price index, whichever was lower. This was a, a law passed in, in Wisconsin. Correct. And that was for public employees, correct? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so Scott Walker pushed this, 
And oddly enough, the day after uh, Trump was elected president, Grover Norquist, um, you know, the famous uh, anti-tax pledger, tweeted, I'd like to congratulate Scott Walker for winning the presidential election when he passed Act 10. So what happened in Wisconsin in the, in the wake of that was the amount of union members in the state federation of labor dropped by 50 percent. Uh, unions, public sector unions, just kind of walked away from those members because they realized that they were getting paid dues that they couldn't offer any value for anymore. You know, they were, they were just saying, we can't do anything for you. We can go into the room and we can ask for a wage increase, and they'll just say, you know, no, we'll give you 1%, and you can't ask for more than that. So, so in other words, they passed a law that stripped union of bargaining rights, so there was no point from the perspective of a union member to be a member of the union. Yeah, there was, and there was no value because these, these subjects of bargaining, like if a union goes in to sit down with an employer, you can negotiate over a number of things, work rules, like seniority stuff, uh, scheduling, wage increases, benefit increases. But all those things which we refer to in Illinois as permissive subjects of bargaining, things that you're allowed to sit down and talk about, in Wisconsin they were then prohibited subjects of bargaining. So you can no longer go in and talk about health care. You can no longer go in and talk about wage or um, retirement. And you're severely limited on wages to... 1% wage increases, which of course is less than um, less than the cost of inflation or CPI, consumer price index, inflation, whichever is lowest. Mm-hmm. So if inflation is above 1%, you still can't go above 1% in your negotiation. So it was, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it was a very effective way to absolutely gut public unions. And frankly, I mean, it's no, it's no secret. It was just meant to destroy the Democratic Party in Wisconsin, which as we saw in 2016, it was really effective at doing. Um, and so now, I mean, across the country, we've seen attacks on collective bargaining. Most recently in uh, Missouri, about a year and a half ago, they passed a law, they passed a right to work law. And in Missouri, there's um, voters have the ability to push a law to public referendum if there's enough controversy about it. So they did that. Legislators passed a right to work law and opponents to right to work were successful in getting it put on a public referendum. So they went out and voted, and 68% of the voters in Missouri said no to a right to work law. So it was defeated. It cost like $20 million to run that campaign. For the unions. It. Yeah, to defeat wow. it. Um, and then what do we see this, this past legislative session? It's back. They're proposing right to work law again, and now they're pushing a constitutional amendment to put it in the Constitution. In Missouri. Right, despite the fact that almost 70% of voters were opposed to it a year and a half ago. So after the legislative, or after the, the initial um, win about 18 months ago, it was kind of our position that you can only have $20 million fights one or two times before you you know you run out of money. So if you're going to do this, if you're going to fight against something like right to work or just fight to protect collective bargaining or enshrine it in a constitution, do it in a more permanent manner. Do it in one where that's no longer subject to, you know, the changing tides of, uh, of partisan state legislatures. Put it in the constitution. So that's what we've been working toward. Um, there is a, uh, there's a piece of legislation in the House and the Senate right now. In the spring session, we expect to see some some uh, activity. We've had a lot of great conversations uh, within labor and within legisl- or with legislative leaders about it. But um, essentially, those are the two things that it would do. It would ban uh, limitations on subject of bargaining, and it would also uh, prohibit any uh, limitations on union security agreements. So it, right. would, it would give workers and employers the freedom to negotiate something without the government banning you know, banning any kind of uh, 
content of those discussions. All right, you've given me a lot to work with here. So let's uh, let's just start with the Illinois thing before I backtrack and go to Wisconsin sure. and Missouri. Uh, don't let, I'm saying that now, so if I forget, you remind me, because uh, I want to know what the impact, if there's a lingering impact in those states against unions because of the movement uh, by Scott Walker, et cetera. Okay, uh, so this is a, basically a proactive move mm-hmm. by uh, unions in the state of Illinois to prevent... Uh, to protect themselves in the likelihood that things would be dramatically changed because I cannot see in the current uh, uh, situation we have in Illinois, Ed, where you have J.B. Pritzker as governor, Michael Madigan as speaker, and um, I just forgot Don Harmon uh, as president. I was almost instinctively going to say John Collinson. Some habits are hard to break. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Democrats in charge. I cannot see in a million years this coming out of Illinois. But you're... this is not unlike HB 40, a, a proactive move by uh, the unions to protect themselves. Am I correct? Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it's more to do than than just unions. Collective bargaining benefits everyone, benefits union members. It benefits workers who are not in a union, because when it comes to wages and benefits, a rising tide always lifts all boats. And what we've seen in, in some of our polling is that workers who are not members of unions in Illinois understand that and are very, very supportive of the idea of this. Now, previous, uh, prior to like 2010, um, there weren't, the Great Lakes uh, Midwest was sort of the untouched by right to work. And then all of a sudden, after the 2010 remap, you saw the partisan makeup of all these state legislatures change. And one of the first things that happened was Indiana went right to work. Michigan went right to work. Wisconsin went right to work. They tried it in Minnesota and it failed. Um, Iowa's been a right to work state for a long time. Kentucky did some county-based right-to-work stuff. Tennessee is right-to-work. They pushed it probably three times in Missouri. So currently, yeah, Democrats are in control uh, in Springfield. There's no doubt about it. All it takes is a bad election, a change in the way that maps are drawn for that to change. And the repercussions for working people of a law like that, that's, I mean, let's be honest, a right-to-work law isn't about creating jobs. It isn't about adding rights. It's just about weakening unions and weakening, um, you know, funders of the Democratic Party, let's say. So it's a political ploy that has real impacts on working people. And so instead of waiting for the makeup of a legislature to change uh, and for those limitations to be placed on workers' rights, we're just going to go ahead and push to, to do this now so it's not an issue. Right. In other words, instead of running the risk that the makeup would change and then you would be vulnerable. Yeah, you, well, you've got to, then you've got to go, they're, they're in a position where they can pass a law like this and you've got to try to stop them. You've got to con- try to convince them not to. You've got to try to push the merits economically, which most of the time in our experience in these states, they don't actually care about. You know, everybody knows they're voting on this. They know what the effects are, but it's, it's a political thing. Um, so... You know, go be proactive instead of reactive. Yeah. Unions have had to play fireman for, for too long in the Midwest and around the country. So, and and more than anything, I mean, let's. This is just a reminder that if we can do this, we can remind these other states, you guys can do this too. And labor's not done. And if things like the NLRB or um, the Department of Labor the, and the state legislatures that continue to pass laws that weaken uh, the labor movement nationwide, if they keep doing this. A little bit at a time, a little cut here, a little cut here. We're never going to be stronger. We're always going to be a little bit weaker. Every year, every one of these laws that, that passes will be a little bit weaker. So if that's true, then we're at our strongest right now. Yeah. So if we're going to fight, what better time to fight than right now when we're at our strongest? So, so what's, 
What's the procedure that the process that must be followed for this to uh, be enacted? Okay, so there's um, there's a joint resolution before the House and the Senate. Two thirds of each chamber have got to vote to support this, and then it goes on the ballot in the November election. It doesn't go to the governor for a signature. It goes through both chambers. Again, two thirds uh, approval. And once that's done, you finalize ballot language and, and put it on the ballot. And uh, has J.B. Pritzker signed on? Um, he hasn't. We've, we're still in negotiations. Uh, we're still in conversations with, with J.B. I know the governor is very, very focused on the fair tax. There's going to be a lot. I mean, you know, I've, I was just about to say it's the same procedure as get the fair tax. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I mean, they passed that resolution in the last session. So the fair tax is going to be on the ballot. Yes. There's, you know, that's a, there's no question about that. Um, but the, the governor has been very supportive of, of unions. And during his campaign, I mean, he stood in, in local 150s hall several times and said, we are going to ban right to work in Illinois. So, I, I cannot imagine. Well, I shouldn't say this because it's the jinx. I'd be really surprised if he didn't sign on to this. Uh, I think a lot of people in yeah, labor would be. Yeah, very La surprised. Labor in general would be extremely surprised. Little he was he was elected on you know a lot of uh, commitments to working people, and frankly, he's been a, a very good candidate for working people. Yeah. Or a very good governor, I'm sorry. And very disappointed. A little surprised. No, very surprised and very disappointed. But I shouldn't accentuate something bad that hasn't even happened That's yet. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's no reason to think that the governor is going to be opposed to this. Now, in the Fair Tax Initiative, which, of course, just to remind everybody, would raise the top rates uh, on the Illinois income tax. We're a flat rate now. Uh, would raise the top rates, and you, the voters, will get an opportunity to vote on this um, in November. I, there was, I don't think there was any Republican support uh, in when it came to passing the resolution needed to put it on the ballot. Is it different with this initiative? My guess is there would be some Republicans who would uh, stand with unions. Am I right in that? Yeah, I believe so. We've had a lot of conversations with Republican legislators, several of which are union members. Um, and there are people who don't want to deal with the, the right to work issue. You know, it's it's a polarizing thing when in, in the states like we represent workers in Indiana. So when the fight for right to work hit Indiana, you had um, you had Republican legislators who lived in district or who represented districts that had a lot of union members, had a lot of Republicans. So they're like, I'm I'm making a very difficult choice here. And for a Republican who's supportive of middle class workers, this is a, a pretty good option. It's just I'm not going to make a decision on this. Let's let the voters make their decision. And so. I think being able to put this to the voters and uh, it, it, it's kind of an easy it's an easy move for a Republican. Uh, so I know that uh, we are expecting that there will be Republican support. All right. That's good to hear. Uh, and uh, so going back to Wisconsin, you were I don't want to lose this uh, trend. I remember very clearly when Scott Walker got elected and he made the move against the municipal, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the public employees unions and gutted them. And yes, it directly led to Donald Trump's victory because I think a weaken, it weakened the unions, it weakened the Democratic Party, and it left uh, Wisconsin vulnerable. Uh, that and Hillary Clinton's re reluctance to go to Wisconsin. I don't know what her problem was with it. I love Wisconsin. Uh, so what has, I haven't been paying attention to what's going on in Wisconsin with the unions. Have unions had a, any rebound uh, in the last few years? In the public sector, no. Uh, the private sector has been, um, it's been, sort of stagnant um and but in the public sector the another part of act 10 that popped up was um members had to 
vote to proactively authorize their unions to to opt back into their unions i think every two years so there was one example that i thought was incredible there was a, a bargaining unit it was for public sector operating engineers so people who um who man the uh the boilers the the mechanical equipment things like that in public schools it was in a public school district they had about 250 members um 100 members voted in the reauthorization election they have to do a mail out vote and it comes back so 100 people mailed out uh, mailed back the ballots out of the 250 that got it it was 100 to nothing in favor of the union it wasn't a majority of the bargaining unit and so the union was decertified like that's what laws like and i mean (laughs) that's what act 10 was built to do yeah if if everybody who's active loves the union but you can count on some people not voting that'll be enough any any way to and all it does is just weaken the standards for workers Mm -hmm. it lowers wages lowers benefits um it's a bad deal and what does it do it strengthens uh, it weakens the democratic party in those states so that's what it's all about but people suffer because of it and it's you know collective bargaining is something that is important across all industries for middle class workers if you're in a union if you're not in a union it's an important thing to protect um and so that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Well, this is a point I always make when we have this conversation, because sometimes I feel like, uh, Ed, I'm speaking to different constituencies, if you will. Like, so I'll have people who come into this studio uh, that say they're a single issue and their only issue is, let's say, abortion rights. Right. Just throwing that out there. Or environmental regulations, okay? And they, they, they stay out of union. Well, you know, and... Some of our, uh, I hear this all the time, some of our, the people we support, you know, they're from districts that uh, are not sympathetic to unions, okay? I hear this, and I always say to them, you know, you're connected, whether you realize it or not. Uh, If you weaken the unions, you weaken, like, the pipeline of the Democratic Party, the the boots on the ground of the Democratic Party. Look at Michigan, look at Wisconsin, and guess what? Then your uh, reproductive rights bills, they don't pass. Right. It's, it's not, you got to work in alliance with other people. Yeah, I mean, in, in the building trades, for example, one of the main issues, um, we have a lot, of, a lot of members who are very, very um, adamant about their gun rights. A lot of avid sportsmen, sportswomen. Um, and, uh, and so sometimes it's a challenge to push a candidate who might be great for uh, labor rights or workers' issues but it doesn't have the best gun record. And I mean, what I always say is um, vote your job and lobby your hobby. I got to write that. You said that the last time and I didn't write it down. I'm telling you. Yeah, Uh, write that one down. Put a a little star next to it. Yeah, lobby your friends. (laughs) Because without a paycheck, you can't do the rest of anything. I mean, you might need guns to hunt for food, um, but uh, I, I think supporting your job and voting in the interest of, of your ability to earn an income should be the first thing politically. Yeah. It's the most important thing that you can do for yourself. All right. I know we're going to be talking about this constitutional amendment uh, in, in yeah, future more shows. Yeah, uh, more month. shows. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but I, I want to turn our attention um, to the National Labor Relations Board. This is a mini obsession of mine. You know, you know me long enough to know I get these little obsessions. So I had uh, Zakowski on the show, uh, union activist. And he was talking about efforts to uh, get the cannabis workers in a union. Uh, And there was one plant, Cresco plant, I think, I forget where it was here in Illinois. Uh, The growers, the people who actually grow 
the weed, the reefer, cannabis. I'm supposed to call it cannabis ad. My apologies. Uh, but who actually grow this stuff that people smoke uh, wanted to organize. The, the, the employer uh, wouldn't recognize the right to collect a bargain. And they argued that because they were in the agriculture industry and the agriculture industry is not recognized uh, as a potential collective bargaining unit, uh, they were not... Uh, they were going to resist them and went all the way to the National Labor Relations Board, which probably most people don't even know exists. And this is a board, a federal board that over, oversees issues like this. And the Trump appointees voted against them. And guess what? No union at the moment. Now it's going to be appealed. And just, I mean, it's, it's just it's the first step of the fight. But this, this, I, I get, this is why it matters who a president of the United States is. For sure. I mean, the, the NLRB right now is, and, and the Department of Labor for that matter, are taking little little bites wherever they can uh, to pass, to put out opinions and uh, rule in cases that have small enough impacts where they're not making headlines, but they have lasting, like generational impacts that would be very, very difficult to overturn. Um, and they're, they're, they're never friendly to workers. And I mean, to your point, cannabis was l not legalized with uh, a whole lot of conservative support. It was <laughs> yeah. Democrats, liberals out there fighting for this for a long, long time. And uh, pushing back on workers' rights is about the least pothead thing I've ever heard of. I mean, stoners of <laughs> Illinois unite. <laughs> get out there, get down to the Capitol, have a smoke out, and let's fight this thing. Because, I mean, that's, that's insane. The people who run these companies probably still think marijuana is a gateway drug, but they're, uh, you know, they're laughing all money. the way. For sure. Yeah. No, I... I and it's a burgeoning industry. And yeah. so, I mean, kudos to the UFCW and some of the other unions that are, that are or trying to organize this industry because a lot of people are, are trying to get into this and, and make a career out of it. Um, and it's best to do this while the, the industry is still young. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, we've, we've got to fight for it. It should be excluded. If, if there are going to be industries that are projected to create a lot of jobs in our state, it shouldn't be a kind of thing where it's like, we've got a new industry, a lot of job opportunities, but from day one, we're telling you no unions, you know, come on, especially, and, and to your point, especially underscore an industry like the cannabis industry, which as you pointed out, like owes its existence to old potheads like me, you know, and other lefties who fought for years to make it legal. Yeah. And to see it flip and and then to see the industry that owes its very existence to the left become take take up a a right wing anti-union cause really is difficult for me to take you know i mean I'm, i almost could like no i can't give anybody slack for being anti-union but like if if if, the, if an industry is embedded into some right-wing community that has always been hostile to the unions i could sort of see it like the old chicago tribune back in the day mm -hmm. even the chicago tribune is now unionized but i cannot tolerate it with the cannabis industry yet no, I mean, I think I think the people who um, who pushed for so many years for the legalization of cannabis didn't see it turning into like a big corporate kind of a, a thing. And uh, I mean, in, in most states where it's passed, that's kind of the way that it's that it's been. A, a few, a handful of large organizations have control over it. And if something like a like collective bargaining is going to impact the bottom line, then but the, and the important point I want to uh, underscore is that the National Labor Relations Board which is the governing body, is appointed by pres the president, correct? Right. 
and as such, uh, their their decisions will be influenced by whoever the president is. For sure, the the board members of the NLRB um, are appointed by, and usually it's the the president's party gets a majority of the seats. And so far, what we've seen is everything that's come out of there has been very, very, very bad. The, yeah. the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, who has a lot of power to put out decisions, is very anti-union. He's a former um, employment side labor attorney, so he knows all the tricks. Mm-hmm. All right, I think our next guest is gathering at the door. We probably should move on. Uh, and so I was going to ask you your just general thoughts on Super Tuesday. Got any general thoughts on Super Tuesday yet? Um, I mean, it's, uh, it, w- it would appear that uh, Bernie's going to have a, a really tough time uh, making a case to anybody that he's got a, a realistic path forward. Um, I was, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm most interested about uh, Bloomberg. I don't think a month ago anyone would have imagined that somebody could come in, spend $400 million <laughs> on ads, and be hated even more than when he started. <laughs> Yeah, well, we got Elizabeth Ward to impart uh, a thank for that. I don't know if you saw the debate. She took Bloomberg down twice. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was that was epic. Um, it was epic. That was an epic takedown. So one more time, Joe Biden, if you're listening, I know you're a huge fan of the Ben Jarofsky show. Show some love for Elizabeth Warren because she took down Bloomberg. As a result, you're in the driver's seat right now. That's how yeah. it goes. Um, all right, very good. Ed Maher, thank you so much. Uh, Operating Engineers Local 150. And uh, Kim Fox is on deck. We'll bring her on when we return. Hi, I'm Ben Jarofsky. And I'm Maya Dukmasova. And this is the Chicago Reader Backroom Deal. And today we're going to be talking about judicial elections. Maya, tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, so this is kind of a lowly part of the ballot, but a very important one. There are 34 judicial seats on ballots across Cook County. So that doesn't mean that everyone's ballot is going to have 34 judicial seats to worry about. But across the county, there's judges running in sub-circuits for appellate court positions. And perhaps most importantly, there is a vacancy in the Illinois Supreme Court for the first time since 2000. 12. So recently, Charles Freeman, who was the first African-American justice to be on the Illinois Supreme Court, he retired. And there was an appellate court justice named P. Scott Neville, who was um, appointed to replace him. But now P. Scott Neville actually has to be elected to the position. And there are seven candidates in this race running to unseat P. Scott Neville. And I would not say that Neville has a, a real incumbent's kind of chance, uh, like the same way that a normal incumbent would have, because this race is very hotly contested, primarily because there's this hotshot young candidate named Daniel Epstein, who is an attorney and not a judge. He has never been a judge before, uh, but he's running kind of a very flashy campaign as a progressive reformer and uh, has lots of social media, lots of media appearances. He's kind of running a very visible campaign. He's a young guy and he's promising to push for reforms through his position as a Supreme Court justice. So this is kind of a tricky proposition because Supreme Court justices can decide whether or not legal decisions by lower courts comply or don't comply with the Illinois Constitution. But there's also a certain degree of of sway that Supreme Court justices have because they oversee things like data transparency across court systems, uh, you know, throughout the state and other issues that kind of access to justice issues, basically. So he's promising to make to be kind of spearheading a lot of changes in that department, but he's really got no record in terms 
terms of, you know, how does he make decisions about the law? What are his positions? And usually for judicial seats, especially higher court seats, it's pretty important to know how a person has has decided the law in the past. All of the other candidates are appellate court judges, and most of them are people of color. So this is the other important thing. The Supreme Court in Illinois has seven justices. Three of them come from the Cook County District, and the rest of them come from downstate Illinois. And so if we're talking about diversity on the Supreme Court, it's fairly difficult to achieve that through any districts that are in Cook County. And so it, it was no wonder that Charles Freeman was from the Cook County District. And so the people who are now running for the seat, aside from Epstein, there's Cynthia Cobbs, Nathaniel Howes, and Jesse Reyes. There's, of course, P. Scott Neville, who's in the seat now. And then there are two other candidates who are white, Margaret McBride, who's also an appellate court judge, and also Shelley Harris, who is a man and did not participate in the last judicial candidate forum that I went to. So I mistakenly thought Shelley Harris was a woman, but was quickly corrected about that. So this is an important race, and I would encourage everyone to take a look at these candidates' histories and records, and the best way to do that is to go out and check out the Injustice Watch Judicial Voting Guide. There you are. What you just heard there is the latest batch of episodes of the Chicago Reader's Backroom Deal with Ben Jarofsky and Maya Duke-Masava. Primary election season's here. Before you go vote, get informed and go listen to these podcasts. Maya and Ben cover damn near all the races in the primary election, and they even cover the Water Reclamation District. Ben, you love that. I love the Water Reclamation District in part because I love water. Trying to get him to run for that position. He loves Mm. water, guys. One of these days. Did I tell you how good the water is in Chicago sometimes? Comes right out of the faucet. Feel free to write in Ben Jarofsky on the uh, water rack. That'll be awesome. Hey, man, I have more credentials. I have as many credentials as Ken Duncan. He got appointed by Rauner. There you go. If he can do it, I can do it. All right, onward and upward. Okay. So, it's the Backroom Deal right now at chicagoreader.com and wherever else you download your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Live from the Chicago Sun-Times. We are live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Usually the way we do this segment of the show, Lenny, uh, is Indivisible Time, and uh, Lenny introduces the mystery guests, but we've been promoting the mystery guests all day long, so it's really no mystery to anybody. Plus, you got the freaking sign up there, Lenny. Lenny, who are you supporting for Cook County State's Attorney? Just wondering. Oh, okay. So we know who the mystery guest is, but Lenny, first, you get to introduce the mystery guests anyway, and but before you do that, tell folks give it some indivisible updates. Okay, right? so indivisible. If you don't know, indivisible is a grassroots movement that started after Trump, and we are working to hold the House, flip the Senate, and defeat Donald Trump in 2020. But we know that local races matter. We knew that in the mayoral election when we endorsed Lori Lightfoot, and we know that moving forward at the primary, we have endorsed. Um, Kim Fox at, at the local level, Indivisible IL-9. Um, so we we have a couple things going on, including um, a couple of announcements. So the event that's coming up is on Tuesday, and it's Women for Kim Fox. 
It's at the Chicago Temple at 77 West Washington, mm -hmm. and it's going to be at 4 o'clock. There are notables that will be there. They, they are lending their voices, including my own congressional representative, Jan Sikowski. Mm -hmm. Maria Haddon will be there. Marilyn Katz is MK helping me organize. Yes, and Toy Hutchinson will speak. Wait, the cannabis star? Yes. Okay. So we're excited about that. Um, if you don't know um, why Indivisible IL-9 has endorsed Kim Fox, um, she is leading on a progressive criminal justice reform. She is um, expunging records of drug convictions, especially cannabis convictions, and she's overturning wrongful convictions um, in Illinois, so in Cook County in Illinois. She is leading in the nation for progressive criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm excited to hear about her more today. Um, not only that, you know, um, after Super Tuesday, I'm a little devastated because um, Elizabeth Warren, I was running as a delegate in the 9th Congressional District. I could st they could still vote for you, though. They can still, I'm going to vote for myself. I almost <laughs> swore right there. You can swear it's a podcast. I'm going to fucking vote for myself All because right, I don't know if I'm ever going to be when on you the, drop the F -bomb. But <laughs> I'm just saying, um, uh, uh, so yeah, so if you don't know, March 17th is Illinois primary, and there are a lot of um, down ballot races, including judicial races, that are um, important. Right now, Chicago Votes has a full page and this week's reader for the Judicial Voter Guide. So please pick up the Chicago Reader and check it out. Um, also, if you are um, interested in joining Team Fox, text COOK, C-O-O-K, to 225-568 and join the team. There's a lot going on. And then moving on to um, another down, uh, another race in Illinois is Marie Newman in the third district. You know, there are 12 days until midterm elections. So we have 12 days to turn out the vote. Um, Indivisible IL-9 has already knocked on 3,000 doors in the city and the suburbs. Um, there's stuff to do every single day in the third district. So come out and help us. Um, you could go to um, 3520 South Archer. Marie Newman's office, and also what's the email, Kelly? Oh, uh, mm, yeah, <laughs> I'm on. Uh, you can email Nick at Marie Newman for, and that's F O R Congress dot com. Also, I'm putting in the YouTube live stream a link to um, a form to fill out. They need uh, GOTV uh, volunteers the final weekend of the race. All right. Man, that was an exhaustive list. I was trying to keep There's up with you there. A lot to do. Uh, a lot of elections ahead of us. Uh, so now you, do you want me just to pretend as though you haven't introduced our next guest, or do you want to do the mystery guest thing that we always do? Well, I, I just want to say that I'm very excited to have Kim sitting next to me. I think that Kim is the best spokesperson for herself. Yeah. And so any chance that I can have to listen to her, I would... I love it. So thank you, Kim, for joining us. And, and then I'll turn right, it over to you. Take it away. Kim Fox, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. So, Kim, uh, I said this when she came in. It's amazing enough. I, we've never met before. Yeah. I've been around Chicago politics for 5,000 years and somehow or other paths have never crossed. Uh, but this little show here in this uh, studio, I, was, I told you when you sat down, is like lefty land. And uh, so we were definitely left of center on this show. Uh, most of my listeners, we've been obsessively talking uh, to one degree or another about Smollett Gate. I call it Smollett Gate <laughs> since it erupted. We have a, generally a different take 
uh, on what went down. Uh, I am uh, bound by my leith, my my oath of allegiance to the journalistic code to ask you a Smollett Gate question. <laughs> uh, I will get to the Smollett Gate question eventually, and I uh, will be really curious to hear what your response is. Uh, and but I just wanted to start by saying that yeah. by all that that this is lefty land, and so a couple of concerns that people uh, who exist in this world that I have uh, the biggest concern about your campaign is that you have not been forceful enough in promoting the causes that got you elected that got you in trouble with Smollett Gate that that got you the opponents that you have with Smollett Gate uh, that uh, that led to the grilling that you got at the Chicago Tribune editorial board yeah. where they flipped you on one side and flipped you on the other and you have a boy Conway coming at you too. Yeah. Uh, so that's generally where people on the left come from things. Uh, so we'll get in all that. I'll just start with this notion that popped in my head when I was walking uh, to the studio today, Kim. You become a symbol, uh, whether you realize it or not, of like, it, it really depends on your p political persuasion. Mm -hmm. To p people on the left, you're a symbol, uh, as Lenny was mm -hmm. saying, of yeah. criminal justice reform, and to MAGA hatters, uh, and uh, Tribune editorial board writers, you're a symbol of everything that's absolutely wrong uh, with the Democratic Party and with uh, people who, who uh, believe in criminal justice reform. Yeah. So how do you view that, do you know? No, as you were saying, I was just thinking uh, they're making a remake of Candyman. The, the movie about the boogeyman from Cabrini. Yes. I'm like Candyman for the people on the right. If you say Kim Fox five times, um, bad things will happen to you. That's how I feel right now. Um, you know, I, I came to this work not trying to be anything other than a prosecutor who was thoughtful about the work that we did in recognizing the power of the prosecutor and having seen that power be used in ways that were oppressive to many communities much like the one I came from. And so I didn't come into this work thinking that somehow I would be emblematic of anything other than fair and just. And watching the last year or so and the, you know, demonization or deification of me has been an interesting thing. I mean, I, I got four teenagers at home. They keep you straight up grounded. Like, we don't know what any of that is. You know, did you sign my permission slip? So I'm just trying, I'm just trying to do good work. Um, I find it confounding um, how sides have played out in the last year about who I am and what I represent. Well, let's talk about both yeah. uh, the demonization and the deification. That's good. I didn't even thought of the alliterative. Uh, let's talk about the, the demonization part of it. Yeah. Uh, why do you think they're demonizing you? I think a couple things. One, someone like me has never had this job before, right? And I'm unapologetic about that. Not what do you just, mean by someone like you? Someone like me, one, we've never had an African-American elected to this position. Cecil Partee was appointed, lost. Um, and we, so we've never had one elected, not a black woman, not one from public housing, um, and one who has said, like, listen, the system is broken. I didn't run for this office with this, I'm going to come in. I, you know, my opponent says, I really enjoyed my time in the office, and that's why I want to go back. I really struggled when I was an assistant state's attorney for 12 years, knowing that we were doing things, what we were saying in the name of justice, and seeing so many people churn in and out, and feeling at the end of the day, there were days that were really gratifying, you, 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 
won a case and the victim's family felt some measure of justice, but there were many days where it really was not gratifying, that, that I felt as though I were part of a system that was designed to break communities like the one I came from. So I think when you come in to a system that's been broken, that so many people have denied is broken and have actually profited off of its brokenness, uh, it it makes you an enemy. Like you saying, listen, we should not prosecute people for smoking marijuana when John Boehner is on a board of a marijuana company. How do you justify that? You know, People got mad when I said we're not going to prosecute people for driving on suspended licenses because of tickets. You know, people got mad. And the FOP had a whole list of things that they were mad at me about. They they used Jesse as the as the gateway and then listed the progressive progressive policies that we that we enacted. And those those were common sense things. Those were basic common sense. Why are we criminalizing poverty? Why are we criminalizing marijuana usage when you can go to California and buy a joint and smoke it, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. How, how are we okay with that? And when it's disproportionately impacting black and brown communities, how are we okay with that? Mm-hmm. I was never okay with it. And I think there have been far too many people who've been okay with the justice system as it is because poor black and brown people don't matter to them. Uh, you mentioned the Fraternal Order of Police. I'm 100% behind them in their uh, movement to get their contract. I think it's outrageous that they don't have their contract yet, so I have to say that up front. Yeah. Uh, that said, I find it a little curious. I talk about this all the time on the show. Uh, their supporters generally, a lot of their members are supporters of Donald John Trump, uh, who is now uh, running as a, a criminal justice reformer uh, based on the fact that he just released uh, former Governor Rob Agoyevich. Uh, he commuted his sentence, got him out of prison. I was a big advocate of that. I think 14 years was too much. Uh, get your thoughts on that if you want to give them. Uh, so I figured it was, it was all good and well. I have a hard time, follow me on this, Kim Fox, I have a hard time dealing with Donald Trump promoting himself as a criminal justice reformer because he led Rob Bogoyevich out at the same time uh, using Smollett Gate to hammer you and try to defeat you uh, because you're helping get some poor black guy on the west side or the south side who's been screwed over by a system uh, that just punishes people who are poor and can't pay, out, pay bail. How is that not criminal justice reform when you do it for the poor black guy on the south side or the west side, but it's criminal justice reform when Donald John Trump lets Rob Bogoyevich out and one black woman, uh, Alice Marie Johnson, yeah. let's not forget her from Kentucky. How is it criminal justice when two people are the beneficiaries of it, but when hundreds of people are the beneficiaries of it, it's not criminal justice reform? Right. I, 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 I'm following you, and I, it's hypocrisy. It's, it's, it's a justice reform for expediency's sake. I mean, I, I, look, the First Step Act was a first step. It is it's movement on the national level. The real meat and potatoes of criminal justice is on the ground. Uh, it's in county offices. 90% of criminal cases are on, at the state level. I think people will glom to that which makes them feel like they are doing something and have the cognitive dissonance to and tune it out when it doesn't match up to the reality. I mean, I, I find a lot of hypocrisy in the criticisms that, that I get. Mm-hmm. Now, your response was very measured. You were very <laughs> non-Ben. 
And this gets to the Delmarie Cobb uh, point about you. Yeah. Delmarie Cobb, dear friend of mine, yeah. a dear friend of this show, comes on all the time. She's yeah. a supporter of you. You should know this. Yes, she, I do. She speaks uh, well of you, but she says she's frustrated that you're not forceful enough in defending the principles yeah. uh, that uh, you ran on and that are getting you in trouble. This is the Delmarie Cobb yeah. theory, and I, I subscribe to it. Yeah. Uh, so here I just threw you a yeah. pitch that you could have hit out of the park. You could have ripped Donald John Trump. You could have shredded him to pieces, but you were measured in your response. Yeah, I mean, look, I, he is who he is. I mean, I, I and I'll just be frank because we've got twelve days. I'm looking at my people over there who are like, "Oh, here she comes." Um, but we got twelve days, so now I, I actually don't care. I don't have the luxury as a black woman to be as forceful. And and I get that Del Marie is a black woman and and wants me to do that. But there are I've seen the way that I'm depicted on TV. I've just seen the pictures that they use. I've seen the rhetoric. I've seen, you know, Second City Cop Block, who has dubbed me Crimesha um, from the day I took the oath. Um, there is an element of race and gender that is in the air that when I am forceful, when I am not as thoughtful and as articulate, it is there she goes. Mm -hmm. And so I recognize as a first in this role that there haven't been people who look like me who do this, have done this that I don't get the benefit of um, not being measured. I just don't. And it is frustrating to me because people then feel that they can do or say. The, the reality is the FOP marched on my office with four different white nationalist groups, four white nationalist groups. The Sun-Times wrote about it. It took them a month to write about it, but nobody else did. And I have said and asked, and people ask me all the time, why, what is the relationship with you and the FOP? Why, why do you have such a hard time? And I was like, it's interesting that you would ask the woman that, whose job they marched on with white nationalist groups who felt comfort in their company. Why do I have a problem with them? As though somehow something's wrong with me. And so it's not that I'm not forceful. It is the trick bag that you're placed in when you are a woman, when you are a woman of color in these roles where the dominant culture gets to tell you who you are and what this issue is. This issue with Smollett, because I'll just take a hit on, you've got 12 days left, is, excuse my line, it's bullshit. Sorry. It's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a podcast. I, you know, hold me accountable. Absolutely. If, if we we could have done a better job of explaining how this fits in the context of the work that we do. And in the process of doing it, we owed a greater level of transparency to the people of Cook County. Absolutely. We are a year out. It's been a year. And what I say, when I say that, it is not that it didn't matter, not that people had questions. This was the, we were dubbed the false confession capital of the United States here in Cook County. Death row was cleared because we had so many people who were wrongfully convicted sitting there. We have Sergeant Watts who have sent countless men to prison for crimes that they didn't commit. We have an abysmal homicide clearance rate. We have horrible violence. And that the narrative that somehow this case about a low-level offense with an actor who pulled a prank, I'm not saying it wasn't offensive. I'm not saying that it wasn't um, something that you know garnered our attention. But a year later, when I'm sitting with parents who are mourning the loss of their children, mm -hmm. that the the... Tribune editorial board would spend almost 35 minutes focused on this without talking about what this office has done or has the power to do. Um, and I do have to sit there and nod, you know, with with all sincerity of listen, I'm, I'm I hear your question and I recognize that concern. 
when inside I'm saying, I know people in the neighborhoods thought that this was, this case was stupid, probably were mad at me for the way I handle it, but have moved on. Mm -hmm. And the fact that those in power, the power to be able to talk about this have chosen not to, I think speaks volumes. What do you think it says? I think it says that for convenience sake, we believe in criminal justice reform. But when the reality of it hits, we don't like it. It's not comfortable. Because if you look at the 770,000 records that will be able to be expunged as a result of marijuana legalization, or the 55,000 people will get their licenses back because of the License to Drive Act, where we're not suspending people's licenses anymore, or the 100-plus people whose wrongful convictions have been vacated during my time here, the work that I've done on just those three issues have the potential to impact over 800,000 Illinoisans. But we're talking about one dude. Mm-hmm. 800,000 to one. Yeah. What are we doing? Well, to me, it says that the powers that be really don't believe in criminal justice reform. They just as soon uh, have the system go the way it, it is going. I got two things to say. One, have you seen David Chappelle's routine on Jesse Smollett? Juicy. Yeah, juicy. <laughs> I guess you have seen it. <laughs> Admit you laughed. I did. Okay. So how long before you realized that Juicy was making it up? Listen, I, Mr. Smollett is under a current indictment, so I'm not going to speak to the merits of his case. I'll tell you what, Kim Fox may have been born at night but she wasn't born last <laughs> night. Uh, thank you, Dennis. Yes. All right, we'll move on for Juicy Smollett, but uh, I urge everybody to check out Dave Chappelle's uh, routine on it. It is pretty funny, uh, if I must say so myself. All right, uh, let's talk about measuring criminal justice reform. You, you, you uh, ran through a list of things that you've accomplished. And this, is, of course, is the part of the interview when nobody will listen to, because everybody <laughs> wants to talk about Juicy Smollett, yeah. uh, because it's celebrity. But let's move on to something very meaningful, and that is the way in which our criminal justice system has been used just to lock up thousands and thousands of black people. Uh, and I it particularly was outraged the way uh, reefer laws were used, marijuana laws were used uh, to lock up black people. I haven't heard the word reefer in so long. <laughs> oh, hey, welcome to the Ben I don't show. know what just happened. <laughs> welcome to our show. Wow. I'm sorry. Go back to the reefer law. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm stuck in the 70s, Kim Fox. I'm down by the lake. We're smoking. Anyway, yeah. uh, so, okay, I'll try I'm sorry, to, try I didn't to, break the rhythm. No, I know, man, I was just feeling it. I've been watching Hunters lately. Have you seen Hunters? No. It's an Amazon show, and it's set in the 70s. I know it's a tangent, it's a tangent but it's so 70s. I'm like, I'm such a 70s guy. All right, so, uh, but I was, you know, particularly offended uh, by the way in which marijuana laws, every, yep. everybody smokes it. Not, maybe, not nobody in this room smokes it, but uh, pretty much just in the most general sense. They probably eat probably, it, but go on. <laughs> oh, a couple of people in the corner, though, look like they may have taken some this morning. I'm just kidding. Uh, so anyway, so everybody does it, but only black people were punished for it. Yeah. I think something that really rubbed me the wrong way, I wrote countless reader columns uh, dealing with yeah. that, and it's just a, a major obsession of mine. So uh, slowly, we've evolved, in quotes, uh, from 
it's what was it decriminalization they called it and now yeah. we have legalization so how is this uh reflected in the work you've done in the last four years in terms of dealing with people who are caught with marijuana or have past records of being caught with marijuana etc yeah um we my predecessor actually had a uh a policy where she was going to stop prosecuting most marijuana cases. And I was under the belief that, in fact, we were not doing it. And one of my policy advisors came and said, we're still prosecuting people for low-level marijuana. And I was shocked. And, again, I had seen John Boehner on this week um, with George Stephanopoulos or something, talking about how he was on the board of a cannabis company. And I was like... Former uh, House Majority Leader Republican John Boehner. Yes, who, you know... uh, pushed a lot of punitive criminal justice measures um, during his tenure. And so when I heard that, I said, well, we're not going to do that anymore. And what was important to me was when we made that declaration on January 22nd, what about the person who got arrested January 20th? So I said we were going to go back and vacate the convictions of anybody for amounts that would be legal as far back as we could go. We had no plan for it. It had never been done. It had never been done at that scope. We sought out uh, Code for America out of California, who had done it in California. California, once they legalized marijuana, then said, oh, what do we do about the old, uh, the older convictions? We wanted to do it before legalization took place. We wanted to be able to have an infrastructure and mechanism in place so that we could sell to the governor and to the legislature, you should put this in the bill. So once we did that, when Kelly Cassidy, Heather Staines, Toy Hutchinson, and Jahan Gordon Booth in the, in the state legislator were working on these on the bill, I asked, could I sit at the table? Could I be a part of it? And they brought me down. And that's where we crafted the piece of the bill that will allow for the expungement. Cook County vacates records. That means you go back to square one, the guilty plea or finding is vacated. It's not just tearing up the record with expungement. It's that didn't happen in the first place. We did that because we knew there were a number of undocumented folks who needed that much uh, more protection because even if they had an expungement, um, deportation processes would allow for them to say, did you have a record expunged? And then go get the record. We didn't want the record. But from the statewide, we Cook County has a carve out. We expunge or vacate records and expunge them. The rest of the state does expungement. And we wrote that in the bill. I convinced uh, the state legislature to, to go along with us. I was the only state's attorney in the entire state, in the state's attorneys association, that sat in support of the legislation. The association, we got them to neutral. But no other prosecutor sat there and said that this is what we wanted to do. Why? I think... People like to be able to have tabs on people. Expungement for folks is, it's the lay, you're a criminal. I don't care that it's marijuana. I don't care what it is. I can't find out if I put your name in, if you're a criminal or not. It makes people uncomfortable. And the thing is, this isn't criminal activity. It was because we put it in the criminal code. But to hold the label as someone is a criminal because they smoked marijuana that is now legal, people love to be able to hold on to that. The scarlet letter. And so no one wanted to do that. We pushed. We got the state's attorneys association to go neutral, and it was estimated that there are seven hundred seventy thousand records that are now eligible to be expunged throughout the state. How many? Seven hundred seventy thousand. So okay, just one more time, explain to people the difference between expungement and vacate. Expunging means you have a record that we're now going to basically conceal from public view. It's like we're ripping up it so no one can see it but you still were found guilty we just took it off your record vacating is we clean the record and we 
like clearly, like the dev never happened and anything that's associated with it is expunged, is also thrown away. So if they say to you, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Um, even with an expunged record, you can say no because they won't find it. With a vacated record, if they looked for it, there's an order that has vacated the conviction. That conviction never existed. Wow. That, now, that's an interesting philosophical question. If you're at, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And the answer is yes, I was convicted of a crime, but it's no longer recognized as a crime. Are you duty bound to say yes? No. You are not. Not in Cook County because your conviction's been vacated. Even though the correct answer is yes, I was convicted of a crime. It's been vacated. The conviction, so the way it goes, I went into court. I had the first hundred people. The judge calls the name. So Ben, we're going to reopen Ben's old case. <laughs> okay. Not that you have one. Probably <laughs> uh, bad example. I got the state's Ben's attorney Ben's old reefer case. We're going to reopen the reefer case. I mean, I was set up. Okay. <laughs> so we open it. It's been closed because it's from 1976, apparently. <laughs> 75, but who's we, asking? We open it. We say Ben's guilty plea or finding is vacated. So the mm -hmm. that's gone. So that old record has now been modified because the case has been opened. That's gone. And then we we're back to square one. And then I dismissed the case. So now that the your guilty plea is gone, state, what are you doing? We're dismissing the mm -hmm. case. And then we destroy all the records associated with it. So there is no conviction anymore. Oh, that's good. Because it's... it's the war on drugs, I think you'll agree with me. Uh, and I think as you'll be free to say this. In the, in the old days, only people like me, like real outsiders could say this, was a, a just a colossal, cruel policy implemented for all the wrong reasons that r just caused unbelievable devastation to communities and families. And it's an embarrassment to the country. So, but now you can say that and run for office. Well, we'll see how this this reelection goes. Yeah. Uh, but you couldn't say that ten years ago. You no. know. And you couldn't. And, and I want to be clear: it's not all the wrong reasons. It was rooted in race. It was racist. It was well. That would be all the wrong reasons. But your points well taken. But I. There. But I think it wasn't a surprise to the people who were crafting it. I, I. You know, there's the video footage where they're talking about how Nixon was saying, you know, we'll attack drugs, but we know what we're talking about. We're talking about poor black and brown communities, and it doesn't look like we're attacking communities. We're t attacking this substance, mm -hmm. and people went along with it for decades, and. Everybody knew the devastation that it was causing when you disrupt communities, when you take large swaths of people out, what happens to the children, what happens to the economy, what happens around it. And it was then not about the policies that were in place. It was about the people. Mm -hmm. Look at those people. It was it was judgments that we were making about people who use drugs and people who lived in those communities. And it was very paternalistic where we're going to try to take care of them. And it wasn't until people started to realize again, because to your point, everybody used marijuana mm -hmm. at the same rates. Yeah. Everybody knew the policing strategies were different, but in the last 10 years when people want to profit and people want to, you know, get on boards and there's a ton of money to be made and this awakening that we have for me, I'm grateful for the awakening, but you got to make it right mm -hmm. to the people who, who, who suffered. And that's what was most important to me. It wasn't simply that now it's legal. 
because people were going to use anyway. I, I use the example. If you looked at the video footage from the first day of sales, the people who were waiting in line at 11 <laughs> o'clock at night and yeah. they had the hand warmers yeah. and the coffee, uh-huh. like in the music, like it, I know people who've smoked marijuana. First time weed smokers aren't out in the cold and like, 11 o'clock waiting to go to a dispensary. Yeah. They got a guy, right? Like this is not, <laughs> this is yeah. not what this is. And, but if you looked at the diversity of that line, uh-huh. it did not look like 26th street. Everybody knew it. And so it wasn't just like, yay, now people are free to do that, which we knew they were doing before they sold that first joint, that first gummy, that first brownie. I needed for us to start vacating the first of those convictions, which is why we did it in December, because I could not live with myself knowing that people were now profiting without us, us having made it right. All right. And what are some of the other uh, uh, reforms that you've instituted uh, other than refer? Uh, one that talks about is, uh, excuse me, cannabis. Uh, one that's been talked about. I say weed. I mean, okay. like, <laughs> it's a generational yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, I, there's... Um, Lisa Solomon comes to the show every other week. Uh, is always Ben. You got to see cannabis. You got to see cannabis. They're always trying to. And Toya Hutchins. Ben, you got to because yeah. she used to come on the show before she was the cannabis czar. You know now she's czarina. Czarina. She's yeah. too important to come to yeah. Ben Jarofsky show. Back in the day when she's state senator, she come all the time. Got to call it cannabis because that's how you do it. You don't say reefer. All right, but other than that, uh, what? Are, so shoplifting. Yeah. Uh, this is a big issue, or not a big issue. This is an issue uh, because uh, Donna Moore has been saying. Uh, that shoplifting cases are going up uh, because you've been too tolerant of shoplifters. Talk about the changes you made in, in shoplifting. Yeah, when I came in office in 2016, we was the bloodiest year in 20 years. 1999, we hadn't seen as much violence as we had in 2016. 760 people murdered, 4,000 people shot in the city of Chicago alone. That's just half of my county. And when I looked at what we were doing with our prosecutorial resources, the number one referred prosecution from police was shoplifting. And people are surprised to hear that it was that it wasn't guns, it wasn't shootings. And the reason for that is Illinois has one of the lowest thresholds to charge someone with a felony for shoplifting in the country. In Illinois, the threshold is $300. So it hasn't accounted for inflation over the years, $300. In Indiana, you know, our, our, our liberal neighbors to the, yeah. <laughs> to the east, yeah. there's a 750 in Wisconsin, you know, Scott Walker country, it's $2,000. Yeah. In Minnesota, it's $1,000. I would do this whole thing around the map, and then someone said, just stop. 47 states have a higher felony threshold for retail theft in Illinois. 47 states. New York, California, none of their thresholds are as low. None, and they're not dealing with violence like we're dealing with them. How do we say to people that I care about the deaths in your community, the shootings in your community, but what I'm prosecuting is low-level retail theft? And so we used our discretion to raise the threshold to what is the standard threshold across the country. And this notion of this fear-mongering notion that, that people do of now people are stealing $998 before tax worth of stuff because they feel like they can get away with it. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's, it's crap. Mm-hmm. It, it, but what it did for us was when we did that, those cases are still prosecuted as misdemeanors because people also didn't realize, even if you sent someone to prison for a retail theft on a felony, they were going for five months, six months, and then back. How is, how is that making us safer? How is that a good use of our resources? It just made no sense. And by the way, we still aren't addressing gun violence. 
So we did that in an effort to allocate those resources to our misdemeanor courtrooms so that we could put more people on gun crimes. Mm. And we took, by doing that, we were able to take lawyers out of the courtroom who would ordinarily be doing those cases, put them in Lawndale and Inglewood to work with police and community in what we call our gun crime strategies unit that would allow them to build cases around who was targeting gun violence in those neighborhoods. And we saw a dramatic reduction in violent crime in those neighborhoods. So much so, we're now in five communities, again, because we've shifted priorities. We, we were able to add more people to the unit when we stopped prosecuting people for driving on suspended licenses for failure to pay tickets. That meant we could shrink our traffic court footprint and then take those bodies and put them in neighborhoods. And so that's why we did it. There was not this lack of concern for shop owners. I've said all along, people don't want to shop in our city if they think they're going to get shot. We have this national reputation for violence. We want to keep our community safe so people want to come shop with you. And we can still hold people accountable. This notion of what accountability looks like doesn't have to be a long-term prison sentence. Most shop owners just don't want the person to come back. They just don't steal from me again. Yeah. They don't really want someone to go to prison for 10 years for stealing a bag. All right, you mentioned uh, gun crimes. So let's talk about, this has been on my mind, uh, the notion of should we have automatic uh, bond, high bonds for anybody uh, who is uh, uh, convicted of a crime, or not? excuse me, not convicted, but arrested for having a gun. What's your general attitude about people who are caught with guns in violation of laws, don't have a license, et cetera? Uh, should they be uh, allowed to uh, bail out, bond out of uh, jail? I think people who are a threat to the public should not be able to bond out of jail. And I don't necessarily equate that anyone who has a gun is a threat to the public. The reality is, and again, it goes back to where I grew up, there are some neighborhoods where people are genuinely fearful of walking without a gun. I use the example, Tyshawn Lee, nine-year-old, who was murdered, horrific case. Those kids who have to walk past where Tyshawn was murdered, sit next to his empty desk, are know that there was one of their own who was killed. It is easier for those kids to get a gun than it is for them to get mental health treatment to deal with the trauma that they suffered. There's more accessibility of guns than the resources that people need to feel safe. And so I know that there are grandmothers telling young people, I know you got to cross these gang boundaries. Be safe. Be careful. There's a luxury that some people have, having never come from a neighborhood like that, that know that people are making real choices about their safety, that they're not bad people, but they are... The reality is that they're making choices about their safety. I don't like that it's guns. I don't, because I think when you have a gun on mm -hmm. you, the risk of you using it is higher. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're someone out there driving violence. I think people who are out there hell-bent on causing harm should be held. But I think you have to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. And I think it is easy political rhetoric to say anybody with a gun should be held. Oh, I'll go one step further. I mean, this, there's no easy answers to stuff, Kim. Right. I mean, there, I, I struggle with this like everybody else. But I'm gonna. I already talked about the the bizarre juxtaposition of Donald Trump's support of criminal justice reform for Rob Bogoyevich, yeah. but not for thousands of black people on the West Side. Okay, that's an interesting little juxtaposition right there. Let's talk about the the bedrock. Uh, support for the second rights, the, the second, second amendment, amendment rights. Right. It's like everybody has a right to a gun, but then it's like round people up for having guns. Now, I personally, 
as you might imagine, I'm not obsessive Second Amendment supporter. But, you know, I don't have it like uh, gun rights T-shirts and stuff like that. (laughs) But I can see the contradiction here. You know, where's the national uh, NRA NRA to support you on this initiative? Do you follow what I'm saying? Again, it's a. Because it's not real. Like, I don't even think, even with Donald Trump and and Blagojevich, I don't think that was about criminal justice reform. I think that was a president who, for his own criminal behaviors, like, has used the justice system to to free his friends and to, like, create a narrative about the power of prosecutors and he's righting the wrong. Um, I don't think that they, you know, there's a joke. It might be Chappelle. I it is a, another Chappelle joke who says, if you want to change gun laws in this country, like arm every black person. Yes, it's David Chappelle. <laughs> and, and people will then want to regulate how you use it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think that they, we give too much credit for them, like being, how do, how do they reconcile? They don't care. Right. Like there's not a, there is no reconciling. There is, we like what we like for us. Um, and it doesn't matter. But I think that rhetoric is dangerous, particularly for people who are running for this office, because it discounts the complexity of all of this to somehow just say that everyone with a gun um, is a danger. That's just simply not true. All right, Kim Fox. Now I'm going to flip the switch and uh, give an example of why you should be thankful for Donald John Trump. Mm. Here we go. Let's see if I can do this. When Lori Lightfoot was running for mayor, a lot of my uh, friends of the activist persuasion called her a cop. Mm. When Kamala Harris yeah. was running for president and I was drinking the Kamala Kool-Aid, I w- when one point, member D, she was my third on the list, right? <laughs> right behind Elizabeth Warren. Uh, people said, Ben, how could you support Kamala Harris? She's a cop. Mm. I, don't hear, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say <laughs> Kim Fox is a cop, mainly because Donald John Trump, fraternal order of police, is Rom is Rom on your side or not on your side? I don't know where Rom is these days. Selling books. He's selling books. Yep. Here's Rom in the wind, blowing this way, blowing that way. On Take this a chill issue. pill, man. Oh, sorry, Rom. Uh, so you do owe them that. I don't think anybody has ever called you a cop, or at least they haven't called you a cop in the last two years. So let's just talk about that for a moment. Yeah. Um, when a Democrat is a in a situation of being a prosecutor uh, in this day and age, so often it opens them up to criticism uh, from activists that they're somehow or other betraying uh, some values and democratic values. And it's a, it's a kind of a trick bag. Kamala Harris, it really hurt her campaign. Yeah. Talk about that. I I think for me, it goes back to, I care about public safety and making sure that we're fair and just and equitable and people's constitutional rights are, are met. I, I grew up in Cabrini. I used to seek shelter in bathtubs when people were shooting I don't want any child in any neighborhood to like have to hide in place, shelter in place because of violence in their neighborhoods. And I don't think that you should have people um, fearful of doing those types of jobs. I, I think you do need police officers who come from these experiences and know, you know, what safety feels like and not be overly punitive, know the language of the people who live in the communities you serve. And so for me, you know, I was a prosecutor for 12 years. I ran for this office knowing the historical legacy of people who have not had those connections to community, who did these jobs that give people basis to fear them or to believe that they don't understand. 
but I came with an understanding of I, I know that language. I know what this feels like. And I know when we have been abusive with our power and I'm not going to do that. And so it wasn't hard to reconcile. I, I talk openly about having been a sexual abuse survivor. Um, I don't think it is wrong for me or my mother to have wanted justice for me and someone to be able to walk me through that process and advocate for me. When we use the connotation cop, it is always negative, not in the sitting with the parents of survivors or people who've been hurt by gun violence. Like we, we provide a real service where we shouldn't be doing is locking people up for marijuana. We shouldn't have allowed for corrupt police officers to plant guns and drugs on people and do nothing about it or let Burge torture people and get those convictions. Like that's where the negative comes from. But there's so much power of good that we could do that gets lost when we allow ourselves to step back when corruption or ill deeds happen on our watch and we do nothing about it. And so I think for me, it has always been in doing this job, trying to keep our community safe. The retail theft choice was so that I could go tackle gun violence. It, it wasn't some philosophical, you know, I just... I think people should steal more. I, I just, it wasn't <laughs> yeah. that. I believe people should be safe in their neighborhoods. And that's where it comes from. Yeah. And I think you can do both. I think you could be a good prosecutor who wants to uphold public safety and care about criminal justice reform. By the way, that last little line, which was a total sarcasm, I know, I could see uh, the Conway people just exerting that out of this thing. <laughs> uh, Kim Fox wants people to steal yeah. more. Yeah. Uh, anyway, all right, well, Kim Fox, we've run out of time, and uh, we want to, uh, Dennis has got to get this thing uh, downloaded and uploaded and all that good stuff so people can hear it. Uh, so I want to thank you very much for stopping, uh, stopping by our humble little studio. Uh, and uh, best of luck to you in the thank coming you. campaign. I'm just going to say it. I feel as though uh, what has happened with Smollett Gate, as much as I love talking about Smollett Gate, as much as I appreciate uh, Dave Chappelle's routine about Smollett Gate, uh, I think it's completely a bogus thing. And uh, I could go on and on about it, uh, but enough. I say it all the time anyway. So thank you for being on the show. Lenny, thank you for uh, making it happen. I also want to thank Ed Maher, my guest earlier in the day. Miles Conflassen, man. He's putting a good spin on Super Tuesday for Bernie people, right? A lot of my Ber- friends of the Bernie persuasion, myself included, were mourning on Super Tuesday. But it's a new day, Lenny. I'm looking forward, and I know you're crying about Elizabeth Warren. My guy Bernie took a took a blow to the chops from old boy Joe Biden, but... You know, got to keep pushing the party to the left, right? Got to right. keep pushing them. Uh, anyway, so I want to thank uh, Miles Conflossen for stopping in. And of course, the show wouldn't happen without the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, behind the, the board there. And as Kim Fox knows, back home in Alton, they call him White Lightning. Give yourself a raise, <laughs> take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. <laughs> Only on this show. I might call it that. <laughs> and remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and wherever else you download your favorite podcast. Downloaders, we live stream this program. It's true. Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel. Join us on YouTube and you can join the live stream chat. Join Brianna, Babs, Steven, and so many more. Join us. We do a live show. But download as well. We'll see you tomorrow.
Take a chill, man.